Today, I want to talk to you in a sermon that I've entitled, Christmas Leftovers. And let me just camp on that image for a second. Anybody here still have any turkey left in the fridge? Okay, some of you do. Anybody here have any sweets, cookies, chocolate, that kind of thing that you're trying to get? Exactly, yeah. In my lifetime, probably 25 to 30 of the years that I've been around, the winters, we lived on the prairies. And some of you can relate to this. At this time of the year, it got cold out. And what you did with your leftovers after Christmas was you put them out on the back porch or on the back deck because you didn't need to fill your fridge up or your freezer up because nature gave you a built-in fridge or freezer. And so it was common at this time of the year, about 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, that you'd put your boots on and maybe a sweater and go stand out in the back porch and graze, okay? You'd just kind of pull stuff out of the snowbank and, and feed yourself. And it was a whole new understanding of grazing. And so today, based on that little picture, Christmas leftovers, I want to turn your attention to a story in the Bible that sometimes gets left over. It doesn't get talked about. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to look at a part of the story of Christmas that, as I say, doesn't always get looked into, and if it does, it always feels like a leftover. And we're going to talk about what happened in the life of Jesus after all of the good things of Christmas. It might be a couple of weeks, it might even be a couple of months, but it describes the, the first year of Jesus' life, and it's all part of Matthew's recollection of the, of the Christmas story. So if you're turning to Matthew, turn to Matthew chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me set a context for you of today's talk. Okay? I'm trying to link Scripture with today. So let me ask you a question about today. Is it just me? Or do you think the place of faith, especially the Christian faith in Canada, has really taken a hit in the last 20, 25 years? Hmm. Is it just me, or, or do you think the same way too? And one of the strengths of living a longer piece of life is you, you get a sense of context or history or perspective. And it doesn't mean what you knew then is better. It's what you knew. And as life moves along, you're always changing. And life is different today than it was. But given the stage of where I'm at in Canada, and I'm passionate about Canada. I, I, I love this country called Canada. I, I want, I'm, I'm proud to be identified as a Canadian. But I also integrate that with my Christian faith. And let me give some observations from, from a season or two ago. As I think about Canada and religion and the Christian faith in particular, and some of you can relate to this, you go back with me into the 50s and the 60s, Canada, the Canadian society and Christianity, it was a context of respect. There was respect. The Christian part of it was partnered. You heard me mention it a couple of weeks back, we had the Lord's Prayer every day in school. Doesn't mean it was right, but that was part of it. And uh, it wasn't just unique to Canada, but that was part of our identity. Um, there were no stores open on Sunday, because <laughs> that was the Lord's Day, and nobody shopped on Sunday. You couldn't. You, the malls were closed. All of the stores were closed. There might be a gas station or a 7-Eleven or maybe a drugstore, but, but that was the connecting point. 91% um, of every Roman Catholic person in Quebec, 91%, 91% went to Mass on Sunday in the 60s, 50s and 60s. 41% of people who identified with Christianity from a Protestant perspective went to church on a Sunday. 41%. Uh, fascinatingly, the most churched country in North America in 1961 was not the United States, it was Canada. More Canadians went to church. It was just part of our culture, of our identity. It was how we lived our lives. The Gideons could come into a school classroom and distribute testaments. Nobody thought it was wrong. It was all part of who we were. There was a, a partnership of respect. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's the way it was. But then in the 70s and the 80s, something happened, and this is my journey. Our lives, here's a, a sidebar. Our lives are most shaped between 5 and 15 the experiences we have between 5 and 15 shape us, and between 15 and 25. After that, it's all just polishing. So what you went through between 5 and 15 affects you how you look at life today. 
And what you went through between 15 and 25 affects you. And what you went through, often you perceive as being normal. So people born or lived up in the 40s, 50s, and 60s are, are upset that Canada doesn't look like it did in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Because that was normal to them. Things changed. In the 70s and the 80s, um, Canada embraced something called pluralism. Uh, a whole philosophical approach, and those of your teachers or those that have uh, experienced a university course in worldview or philosophy, pluralism basically says there's not just one truth, there's many truths. And no one person has all the truth by themselves. No one group should be given the power to have all the truth. We need to be open to many truths. So have your truth, but be tolerant and respectful of other truths. And Canada embraced that, and it was interesting. Uh, we moved from a, a, a season of respect to one I call a season of neglect. We went from respect to neglect. And by neglect means eh, we just didn't pay attention. Church attendance dropped way off. There, there's a whole story behind that I'll share at another time. The laws changed in the 70s and the 80s. For instance, uh, I alluded to the fact that there was a time when stores could not open on Sunday because it was the law. You didn't have a choice. You were fined if you opened your store. The police could shut you down. Um, I grew up in Ontario, and it was a provincial statute, but the provincial, provincial statute was called the Lord's Day Act. That was the law. That was the name of it. And in the late 70s, pluralism says, hey, 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 no one truth can trump all other truths. The Lord's Day Act sounds a lot like a Christian, and it was, perspective on Sundays. And the law was changed saying, if people want to be open on Sunday, what right do the Christians have to close them down on Sundays? Whether it was the Christians or not, but that's another discussion. And so all of a sudden, shopping became a non-issue on Sunday. It was fascinating when they passed the legislation through, and again, I, I'm showing my age and my stage, but the legislation said very clearly, if working on a Sunday should be prohibitive or deleterious to one's faith or religion, no person shall be obligated to work on a Sunday, and they will not be punished for it. Well, today we kind of smile about that because you're not here because you're working today. <laughs> And many of you relate to it and you say, yeah, if you don't work on Sunday in certain jobs, you don't work, period. You're marginalized, you're not hired, and things like that. Uh, going into the mid to late 80s, something else happened that reflected the pluralism of the day. Um, about 1985 or 86, maybe it was 87, I, I need to look it up. Canada decided that the laws on abortion needed to be revisited because it's obviously a Christian viewpoint. And we cannot impose Christian views on everybody. And I'm not going to get into the discussion today, but that was the thinking of the time. And so that law was released, and there is no law, because who are we to impose any kind of values on people? The law needs to be neutral. It was a time of neglect. But then it moved even further into the 90s, and I'm just going to speed through this. We went from respect to neglect to reject, reject. It was fascinating. In 1991, the Canadian government gave a whole new question for people to answer in their census. Y'all know what a census is? It, it comes every 10 years in Canada. Canadians keep track of things, and we don't see it as a bad thing. Prior to 1991, uh, the questions were always, I forget how it was worded, what religion are you? And you got to tick a certain box. In 1991, for the very first time, they put a box in which said, NR, no religion. And all of a sudden, which had not been an option before, now became an option. It's amazing today how about 25% of our society ticks that box because we don't need that. Uh, um, we moved to a place where Christianity was not just neglected, it was uh, rejected. Um, I remember in 1998, the Swiss Air, I forget the flight number, went down off of Peggy's Cove in Nova Scotia. And a couple of days afterwards, the government offered a memorial service, a, a memorial service. And so they invited a rabbi, uh, an imam, a Muslim church leader, uh, a Buddhist monk, and a Christian padre. And they said to the Christian padre, you may not use the name Jesus in your homily, and you may not offer any scriptures that are uniquely Christian. 
And all of a sudden, Christianity became from respect to neglect to rejected. You can't talk Christianity. And that even, even further now today, and I'm going to just keep moving us in the last 20 years, we've moved to a place where, and I don't understand it really, is Christianity in Canada has now become not respect, not neglect, not reject, but actually suspect that it's the cause of our evils and our, our discoveries. I remember in the, in the 90s, I was a member of a, the school board, and I had identified as Reverend McDonald. And in school board meetings, it was my usual practice, I would ask to give an opinion. I said, well, you need to understand that I come from a religious background, and I don't want to impose that, but there are a lot of people that see life this way, so therefore, and based on that, here's how I see this situation. And it was fascinating in those days, the school board chair, the, the superintendent of education, thank you, Reverend McDonald. That, you know, it was, it was an opinion, and that's all it was meant to be. Um, in about 2002, I stood up in a public meeting, and I began to talk, and as was my usual shtick, I said, I'm Reverend McDonald, and I realize not everybody sees it my way. And the group, about this size, a vocal number of people says, sit down! How dare you bring that religious crap? And I'm like, whoa. And the undertone was, you are the problem in our society today. And it caught me off guard. Um, I, and I'm wondering, it just seems to me more and more that there's a, a willingness of our society to, to blame Christians for much of the social ills of our day. The fascinating, they shut it down, they tried to shut, uh, there's a recent incident in the federal election uh, some of you know the name Elizabeth May. She was the leader of the Green Party. And historically, Elizabeth May, before she got into politics, she's an ordained Anglican priest. So she has a, a Christian background. I'll say it with that, okay? And she was being interviewed by CBC in September in a very candid, casual interview. And the interviewer said, who's your hero in life? And do you remember what she said? She said, oh, Jesus Christ. And the interviewer and Elizabeth May went, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, let me take that back. Why? Oh, I, I shouldn't impose my religion on people. That's not Canadian. And don't judge Elizabeth. She's just responding to the culture of the day. How dare you use a religious figure, especially Jesus, to describe yourself? It's not as tolerant a society as we like to think it is on these matters. And for some of you, your own personal story, whether now or over the years, you can think back to a time when because of your identity with Jesus, it didn't always go as well as you thought it would. And it wasn't as, as, as helpful and healthy as I hope it would be, whether at work, whether in your family, whether in your friendships. And so my point in setting also, what's going on? Where's this coming from? I want to suggest to you that if we look in Matthew chapter 2, we're going to see some of the roots of all this. It's been around a lot longer than just the last 20 years. And I've got my Bible open, and I just want to bring you there. Matthew, when he records the birth of Jesus, is dark. It, it's not as happy as Luke is. Luke's record of the birth of Jesus is happy. Angels are singing. Mary's singing. The shepherds are smiling. People are having a good time. Matthew doesn't go that way. Matthew has a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain, a lot of anxiety. And so I'm just going to read through the passages and then draw some conclusions in our time. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, I'm in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, during the time of King Herod, Matthew's recording this. Herod's the king. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is he the one, and if you're a person that underlines in your Bible or likes to make note of significant, look at this next phrase, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Hang on to it, that's important. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He was a underline that. He was, just, he was upset. And not just him. All of Jerusalem with him. Stop for a second. Context. Herod was not born king of the Jews, even though he portrayed himself to be the king of the Jews. He had been appointed there by the Roman government. In fact, he had had to do some political maneuverings to get to his place, even to the point where one of his siblings was murdered in order to validate him as the king. Here's a man who isn't where he's supposed to be because he was born there. He's insecure. 
His power is being threatened because somebody has come along saying there's somebody here who has natural birth authority to overstep me? Say, what? And because of his paranoia, and it had been evidence before then, all of Jerusalem says, uh-oh, uh-oh, this is not going to be good. What's he up to now? When King Herod heard this, he's disturbed. So what does he do? He calls together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asks them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler, a ruler, an authority figure, who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, look what he does in verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. Psst, come here. Psst, come here. You guys don't listen. Psst, come here. Tell me when the star appeared. And so they mentioned it, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, this is Herod. This is not the gospel. This is a man who is as insecure as all get out, who's worried about his future, who's fearful himself. He says, as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him too. And if you put parentheses, I think he's saying, har, har, har. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it arose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But let's pick up Matthew's darkness. Verse 12. And having been warned. This is Christmas time. <laughs> we don't need to do any warning. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream again, says, and if you're an underliner, get up. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Escape. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, verse 14, took the child and his mother during the night, not waiting till morning, not saying, well, let's get an early start at sunrise. It was the pitch black middle of the night. He says, we got to get out of here, sooner the better. And they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, which may have been a year or even two years later. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Look at verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, when his way didn't go, when they listened to a different set of instructions than his, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill. I shouldn't read it so quickly. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time you learned from the Magi. This man is so psycho. He heard what the Magi said about when the child was born. He thought, okay, counting backwards, it might have been a month, it might have been two months, it might have been three months, but I don't trust these guys. Tell you what, just do a total obliteration of all boys under two. That way we're sure to take care of all. Every male baby in the neighborhood can you imagine, and this is too horrific, but can you imagine a terrorist breaking into your nursery here and throwing a bomb in to obliterate all the children? What level of insanity? That, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Oh, okay, this is good. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, like father, like son, not born to the role, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. 
And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled when he said to the prophets he would be called Nazarene. Uh, we read scripture, and I just want to draw from it, and I alluded to it before I begin. Matthew's dark. If you read what's going on here and try and understand it, it's, it's not just a story, it's, it's dark. It's not happy. And one of the conclusions that Matthew wants his readers, because remember Matthew's writing this 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. He's not writing it in the moment. One thing he's trying to do is, is he wants people to realize that Something about Jesus didn't sit well with the system at the time. It provoked hatred and fear and hostility towards him. Something about Jesus didn't sit well. It threatened him because he was born king of the Jews. In his earthly ministry, Jesus referenced it. He said, and in John chapter, uh, John chapter uh, 12, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. I'm in verse 18. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world because this world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who has sent me. If I had done, not done among them what the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. They've done this to fulfill the word that is written in the law. They hated me without cause. And basically what Jesus says, and it was evidenced in his birth and, and in his teaching, is that if you become a follower of Jesus, don't be surprised if it brings you into conflict with the system, whatever system it is you come in conflict with. And so if you read the early records of Acts, the New Testament followers were arrested often and imprisoned. Many were tried and executed. Many were marginalized from their family and their society. And they lived in constant fear and anxiety that they would be broken into and disrupted. And, and why was it? Because they had so identified, they had self-identified as a follower of this rabbi Jesus. And it threatened people. It made people angry. Why? Two reasons. One is because these Christians claimed an ultimate adherence to Jesus as Lord. If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus is Lord. You may say that quickly, but understand what you're saying. In the day and age of, of the first century, Caesar was Lord. That was the affirmation of the Roman citizen. I am committed to Caesar as Lord. The Christian says, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And we may sing it and say it with affection and affinity, but for people who believe in someone else or something else being Lord, what you say is very threatening to them. You mean there's a higher power than this? How dare you? You mean you're affected by this more than you are by this? Oh, you're ridiculous. And not only that was just threatening, um, it provoked guilt, anger, and reaction because these people over here had the audacity to say that the way of the society is wrong and the way of Jesus is right. Nobody likes a morality cop. I get that. People want to do what they want to do. They don't want to be told. And you and I walk around saying, this is the way of Jesus. How dare you impose your religious truth on me? I'm not. I'm just saying I follow the way of Jesus. Well, that has no relevance to our society. And so persecution became, became part of the program for the first couple of centuries. Those that study church history know this, that it was common in the first and the second and even the early third centuries for Christian churches to be interrupted, for Christians to be arrested, for Christian leaders to be imprisoned, and many lost their lives as martyr. And it was around 312 A.D. when Constantine, one of the emperors converted, and what he did was he imposed Christianity on the Roman world. <laughs> that was a great way to end persecution all of a sudden. But it was fascinating because the whole Roman Empire says, we're not going to kill Christians anymore. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and for many, many centuries, Christianity became the dominant religion of the day. Um, doesn't mean that Christianity has now become pablum. In fact, there's always been a part of the world where Christianity is, is open to persecution. Uh, for instance, in 2018, a year ago, records show that there were close to 4,000 Christians martyred around the globe 
for being Christians. 4,000. Um, Christianity is not the dominant religion everywhere in the world. There are still places where it, by its very nature, makes it vulnerable to attack and persecution. Uh, my youngest daughter lived and worked in China from, uh, the dates are about 06 to 011. I went to visit her. And things may be different. I haven't been there in 15 years, so I shouldn't comment. But in those days, it was very clear that Christian religion was, was there was the above-ground church, nice and white and antiseptic. I went to the religious service, and all the people there were Western diplomats, international people, people like that. And that was all good coming. But there was the underground church over here where Chinese citizens went and gathered in the name of Jesus. And this over here was vulnerable because it threatened the system. They have another Lord than the chairman of the party. These need to be watched. And when you went to these meetings, uh, you need to be more circumspect. I was disinvited from these meetings because I would bring undue attention to these meetings. I did some work in Vietnam in the late 90s and early 2000s, and basically there was the, the thought that if you were a Christian, you must be a part of the CIA. What? Well, obviously Christianity is a pawn or a puppet of the American government. Really? And so it was part of the government's endeavors to make sure that nothing happened over here that they didn't know about and approved. And if things began to happen here that they didn't have awareness of or approval of, they had the authority to break into and to scatter people. Because I don't believe you're meeting in Jesus' name. How dare you think you have the liberty to do that? We break it up. Um, even in Canada, I want to suggest to you that Canada uh, is not immune to this. Christianity in Canada ruffles feathers. Um, in the late 1950s, some Protestant missionaries, whether you agree with it or not, and things like that, went to northern Quebec to do some gospel meetings. This is kind of recent history or relatively recent. And they got arrested and put in jail. Christian evangelists went and had some gospel meetings, rented the legion, put their organ up and put posters around the town and invited people to come to gospel meetings. And what happened was the system, uh, the religious system of the day, felt threatened and said those people are wrong and they informed the police of the day and those people were arrested and thrown into jail. The charge was they were disturbing the peace. And in and, and all fairness, they didn't disturb any peace. Nobody came to those meetings. It was just the evangelist and his wife and his organ. <laughs> but the very fact that they would put posters up and invite people to something outside of the system. Um, I have a friend, and it, it still is there today, and ca Canadians like to think we're not doing this, we're, we're more sophisticated. Our, our degree of dissent is much more sophisticated. He's a pastor in, in Winnipeg, and it's a great story of how, as I say, if you're a follower of Jesus, be prepared for some pushback. He was pastor of a church, and it would be a little smaller than this one, and the building might be a little older than this one. It was built in the 50s, so I don't know your history here. But outside on the front of the building was a large 25-foot wooden cross, a big symbol. And as things go, it began to deteriorate and needed to be replaced. And so in his creative millennial way, he's not into Christian symbols, he's into images and icons kind of thing. He, he, he and his board commissioned a mural artist to paint a 30 by 30 foot picture of Jesus on the side of their building. And they paid about $15,000. It wasn't cheap kind of thing. And it was a benign, benevolent Jesus. You know the picture of Jesus and the children coming to him? It, it, I mean, how can, like, uh, and the neighbors were, paid no attention because it had been covered in scaffolding for the two months of June and July. But at the end of July, they had an unscaffolding party, and it was put up, and there was a 30 by 30 foot picture of Jesus on the side of this church. The neighbor across the street lit her hair on fire. What? Who gave them permission to put a 30 by 30 foot picture of Jesus in the street? The kind of thing. And she phoned the city immediately and said, is there a signed bylaw or not? Do they have permission to put this up? And the person said, nope, there's no permission given to do a sign. Get out here. Get that down. And so the municipal officiant came out, looked at it, and looked at the bylaw and said, well, technically, they didn't need permission. Well, of course, they put a new sign up. They tore down. No, it's not a sign. There's no words on it. It's just a picture. You're allowed to paint anything you want on the sides of your building in Canada. Really? 
So then she went to the real estate commission and said, this needs to be stopped. The property values are going to deteriorate. They're going to plummet in this neighborhood because there's a 30-foot picture of Jesus staring in my kitchen window every day. And the realtor who was head of the Winnipeg Realty at the time, I don't know whether he was a person of faith or not, but had a very balanced sense, well, they might go up. Some people like having a 30-foot picture of Jesus outside their house. It might go down. Some people don't like it. We can't make a ruling on that. The market's a funny, funny, funny vehicle. But the idea was, how dare he bring a 30-foot picture of Jesus? Uh, most recently, I had a conversation with a friend, and I have tons of friends. And some are in the faith, and some are outside the faith. And, and, I, and I don't hide who I am, but my point was, I said, you know, uh, we were talking about a social issue, and I said, from my perspective, I've really been influenced by my faith on this matter, so I don't apologize. This is how I view it. Well, they looked at me, they, they erupted with anger, chastising me, saying, how dare you impose your religion on people? And, and I was taken aback. Yeah. Um, I, I get it. I'm an understanding guy. If you're a follower of Jesus, some things that you believe don't fit. And some of the practices you follow won't work. And, and it's no easy matter in Canada because we're trying to move away from respect and, and undo. Uh, we're trying to create a society where that isn't an issue. Um, Canadians, and I love Canada, we know at a, at a 30,000 foot level that religion can get contentious. So in our effort to govern well, we've moved to what's called a secular model to faith in society. And, and the easiest example to show you that a secular model is we want to scrub everything religious out of the society. We, we do. We don't want Jesus in it because that's too conflicting. We don't want Christians verbalizing their opinions because it's too disrupting. Scrape that out. And Quebec is the easiest picture of it. They, they have wrestled with this and they moved to a, a very secular understanding that, that there would be no visible religious symbols in the marketplace. None. And, and we think often that that, well, that's against a particular group. The truth is it affects everybody. They don't want anything like that. And so there'll be no cross. They recently took down the cross from the legislature, rightly or wrongly. There'll be no Bibles carried in public because it's too inflammatory. No jewelry. No hijab. And the truth is if you want to work in a government job, if you want to teach in a school, serve in a hospital, you'll have none of that. And, and that's where our society is going, that suddenly any evidences of Jesus that would be like that are inflammatory and disruptive. And so I'm, I'm saying in a very sober way today, if you are a follower of Jesus, don't be surprised if in trying to live out your Jesus faith, it puts you in a conflict with. And I could go on and on. The, 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 the challenge piece is, what does this all say to us? How should we then live if Jesus was treated this way? And we will, by connection, be treated like that. How should we then live? I want to say two things. Firstly, by matter of faith. Um, our faith, our belief, our deep-rooted trust in God says that God is still God, and I still am a Jesus follower, even if it doesn't work perfectly. Even if it doesn't bring me all happiness. Even if there's a darkness to it. Um, I want to be aware that some of the stuff you and I go through is really because we're doing our best to live a faithful life for Jesus. Um, some of the things you saw in 2019, some of them anyway, are directly related to the fact that you've identified as a Jesus follower and it's threatening and imposing. Um, it may have been amongst family members. It might have been amongst society in general, the culture or friends. But it's a very, very hard teaching. If you follow Jesus, it will not get easier the road tilts upwards. Um, our faith tells us, though, that God is still God. And the invitation to follow Jesus is not an elective. It's an invitation. The second thing was to say is, what should our behavior be? And, and interestingly, we're not alone in this. The scripture's been clear to Peter, writing to first century Christians, says in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But the degree to which you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Listen to this. If you are reviled, if you get kickback, if you get pushback for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you do it for the name of Christ, because the spirit of glory and of God rests in you. But 
make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. Sometimes we're just a disturber. And we think, <laughs> I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. You're kicking the manure pile. It don't stink until you kick it. Make sure that you suffer for the right reasons. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in his name. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, meaning those people that have no faith or no, no affection for you, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. It's time we've lost the right to speak, okay? So it's time to quit speaking and start acting like Christians. I listened earlier to the opportunity to do something significant in your community called the MAT event, and I don't know everything about it, but I like that. That sounds to me like a good thing for Christians to do. And if the word to be known in the community, they have a great worship band, I'd rather they'd know that they look after homeless people at Calvary. There's something about that that validates you. Because of your good deeds. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.17, um, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Let me, let me close with this, this thought. Um, this is personal. I have gotten into trouble over the years. I, it's about me, not about. When I have become defensive or argumentative, needing to win the point. And I have encountered many times where I felt I needed to stand up and defend the angels and attack the wrong in front of me. And usually it was because I was feeling threatened or I was worried that God would suffer and the angels would be embarrassed if I didn't speak out. Uh, trust me, if you become defensive and attackful in the midst of conflict, it's a good recipe for further attack. And so I've chosen in this season of my life, and this is just my journey, to try and say, what are the good deeds that I can do that are more than good words to people? What are the good deeds that I can do that are more than good words? people rather than trying to explain communicate overrule show them their errors you see uh, what we do is as important as much as why we do it uh, i'll close with this story uh, i retired uh, what four years ago now for the first time and one of the assignments i took on was an, 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 uh, an organization came to me and said would you help us start up a refugee society that was about 2015, I believe, when Canada had opened the doors to 30,000 Syrians and said, we'll take you in. And, and as much as our prime minister was very generous in that, he didn't know what he was speaking about. We were not prepared on an infrastructural standpoint to receive 30,000 bereft people. The system can't absorb that many that quickly. And we were an agency, and today uh, Lyle and Mindy work there. It's called the New Hope Community Services. But we, we bought an apartment building and said, we're going to do our best. We can't take 30,000. We'll take 10 families at a time and enculturate them to Canada. And it was done in Jesus' name, but a very clear way. There were no Christian symbols in the building. What? Nope, no crosses, no Bible verses. What? I thought you were Christian. And I said, I would like this to be a place where we knew that 90% of the people that we'd be touching would be, not be Christian in background. They may have a strong faith in another area. They may have no faith at all, but it's highly unlikely they have an affection or appreciation. How are they going to know that you're Christian if you don't have the symbols up? And I said, they'll know by our deeds who we are. And I used to, we used to have this thing called community meal twice a month. And I would get up as the leader of the place. And I would, I would always do this standard speech. I would say to the, to the residents, everybody would be 40, 45 there, said, everybody doing okay? Yeah, good. Uh, everybody got socks? Good. Okay. Everybody need jackets? Good. Okay. Everybody got a job? And I'd do all the checkpoints, making sure, because we're here to help you get on your feet. And whatever we can do to help you be successful is what you're here for. And you knew that was a message of hopefulness to them. I said, you need to understand where I'm coming from. The other thing we need to know, are, are you feeling loved? And they're like, why is that important? I said, you need to know where I'm coming from. I'm Reverend McDonald. I'd say that. I'd say, I am a committed Christian. And I work for Jesus. 
And many people got that said. And he tells me that all people will know that I'm his disciple if they experience love. And if you're not experiencing love, I'm going to get in trouble with my boss. Okay? So if you're not feeling loved here, let me know. I don't want to get in trouble with the big guy. And you may think it was a little bit blasphemous, but it was very sincere on my part. We're here to make sure that the love of Jesus is experienced. Now, in conversation, in communication, it could come up. But we're not here to put symbols on the door, um, icons on the wall. We're here to live out the love of Jesus. And I want to suggest to you today that if we are to be followers of Jesus in a darkening society, and I'll use the word when you want to say dark or darkening, I think it behooves us to say, what can we do to show the living love of Jesus through our behaviors? Uh, in the midst of it all, we have a choice. We can curse the darkness or we can light a candle. Uh, I'm going to finish here because I've got to go find some matches and a candle for whatever opportunity I find this week. You too. Let's pray. Lord, Christmas uh, is such a rich time, but it's mixed. Uh, I thank you that you chose to come into the world knowing full well that this would be your journey of, of, of attack and even, even death. We thank you for setting the way in front of us and telling us about it and modeling it for us. And now we who are your followers today understand a little bit of what you're talking about and, and ask for your help, your grace and your courage and your Holy Spirit's power to be your children in the midst of all these things. And I pray for this room of, of followers, uh, followers of Jesus. May they know through the Holy Spirit the, the strength and the courage that comes when we live for him. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.